Our next speaker, um, representing the pharmacist perspective, is Dr. Sunny Linneber. She's an associate professor of clinical pharmacy at the University of Colorado Skag School of Pharmacy and Pharmaceutical Sciences, which is in Aurora, Colorado. She's the investigator of various clinical studies projects related to medications and has published numerous journal articles on topics related to older adults and medication management use and misuse. So she is a specialist in geriatric pharmacy. So please help me welcome Dr. Lindberg. Thank you, Laura, and thank you so much for inviting me to come speak to you all today. Um, I, I feel really fortunate this is my first visit to New Hampshire. So I was really excited to come, and sounds like we have feedback again. Um, and thank you to Ellen for inviting me also. Um, so today I, I wanted to give you a brief introduction to, to what I do as a pharmacist and um, give you some of that background such that it will help you understand where, what perspective I'm coming from. So I am a, a clinical pharmacist at the Seniors Clinic, in the, which is an outpatient clinic at the University of Colorado Hospital. So I practice a quarter of my time in that Seniors Clinic, and I see patients independently. I also see patients with providers for all medication-related issues. So um, I will see patients to educate them about their new medications or to troubleshoot problems that they may have getting their medications appropriately or to make recommendations on reducing polypharmacy and all sorts of different things. So we do a lot of investigative work, uh, we, myself, and my partner, and then we have residents and students that we precept. And a lot of our work is done to try to make sure that we're doing the best we can with medications and a lot of the time that we are doing this work, it's around um, medications that are, are risky medications for older adults, and that encompasses opioids. So I'm going to be talking today a lot about how we manage our patients' opioid uh, medications in collaboration with both the nurse in our two nurses in our clinic, our physicians, our nurse practitioner, our physician's assistant, our social worker, and our geropsychologist. So we have a very um, interdisciplinary team, which is amazing, to be able to work in that environment. Now that being said, I also, um, as a faculty member, do teaching and do research, and then I have a very part-time job in a pharmacy. So as a pharmacist, I didn't want to lose my skills. So after about five years of not working in a pharmacy, I got a job at Target. And so <laughs> Target is a wonderful pharmacy to work at. They're, not all pharmacies are as nice as Target. Um, and so I do work part-time just a few hours here and there as an actual pharmacist so that I can also have that perspective to, to share with you too. So today I'm going to talk about the pharmacist perspective related to opioid use and abuse in older adults. And in our clinic, our patients are all 75 and up. So we do have an older group of patients. Um, the average age is in the mid-80s, and they are either ambulatory or they live um, with family members or in assisted living, but they're not nursing home patients. So I can speak about nursing home care and what, you know, what goes on in that setting, but my primary um, expertise is in the ambulatory setting. So today I'll talk about how pharmacists interact and how you may have interacted with pharmacists here about opioid prescriptions. I'll also talk about PDMPs, or prescription drug monitoring programs, 
that are around the nation and will soon be coming to New Hampshire. Are, uh, and I'll have some slides about the Vermont PDMP. Now in some states, the term may be PDMP, or Prescription Drug Monitoring Program. In some states, they have a different name for it. But um, the United States or national term is PDMP to describe those programs. I'll also talk about some of the new labeling changes that you might see in the future, specifically in the spring of 2014, coming out for the long-acting opioids with um, specific labeling and specific REMS programs that, that might impact your care of your patients. And then I'll describe some of the new guidelines that have come out in Ohio related to curbing opioid abuse in the state of Ohio. And then finally, the, I will, in addition um, to what Dr. Krasnoff talked about, talk about the disposal of opioids in clinical practice and how, how can we handle the disposal in our various patient settings. So as a quick review, I know we talked about this morning that opioids are abused by older adults, but that the rate of opioid abuse is very rare. And I would agree with this. Um, the opioid abuse by the actual older adult, this, these are data from 2006, but you can see here on the right that um, is the, in this particular study of older adults over age 60, leading to hospital admissions for alcohol, 1.4% of them are also taking opioids and abusing the opioids. So the, the rate of opioid abuse is fairly rare by the older adult, but does occur. What I personally see in practice is that the family members or the patient's relatives, um, distant relatives or friends are more likely to be the ones that are abusing the opioids and taking them from that elderly patient or older adult. And in addition, we can see some patients actually selling their opioids on the street to supplement their income that may be very low and they be, may be relying on the sale of opioids in order to meet their basic needs like buying food and um, paying for their heating and stuff like that. So I wanted to describe a little bit of what I found in the literature when I looked this up, there were, there were some nice quotes in this article of Pain Medicine 2009, and it talks about three different examples where they interviewed opioid abusers. So this is a female in her 30s, but she just, she's describing where she gets her pills from, and these are all in Delaware. So in my neighborhood, we have a lot of old people who get these pills prescribed, they get methadone prescribed, they get needles and all that, and that's how they make their money. I have 20 different old people that I can go to to get prescription opioids. So, um, and these are real examples where um, people have these networks set up in order to obtain their opioids on the street. Um, this young male poly drug abuser echoed this by saying the elderly have a lot of 80 milligram oxys, which is um, oxycontin. Everybody got the green, big green pills and everybody had Xanax. There were old people that were especially this lady that was doing like five or six doctors and getting all kinds of prescription pills. They were just giving them to her. She was just selling them. So you can see that um, in that case, that patient was a doctor shopper and had multiple providers writing for these opioids. And yet another explained, I've seen a, a lot of older people who don't have a lot of money getting addicted to getting the money from the pills that they sell. And they'll go from doctor to doctor shopping for pills to sell to people. 
So in this case, these um, abusers are describing how they're getting their pills from older people and that the older person is deceiving their provider in order to obtain the medication. And I think that's probably less rare than the family members abusing the medications or maybe the family is actually doing the selling because the older adult may not have the means to get out and make the sale. But I don't think we can discount our older adults and assume that they are not taking advantage of us as providers. So what I'm gonna talk about today is some of the ways that you can help in your practice and your providers, or if you are a provider, help yourself be more efficient and be more effective at evaluating your patient's risk and your risk in prescribing opioids. <clears throat> so I wanna start with a case. This is an actual case, I named him C2. Um, this is a patient from our clinic who is um, someone that was brought to my attention by the provider and, him, and the patient actually walked in for a visit himself and he came to me and said, you know, the first visit was, I have a lot of difficulty affording my OxyContin, so I would like to see if you can help me figure out a way to treat my pain and make it more affordable for me. So I said, okay, you know, what, what's going on? And so he's a 76-year-old man with chronic pain. He has post-polio syndrome and chronic weakness. He has pain all over his body, specifically in his neck, his arm, his shoulder, his lower back, and his leg. And then in addition to that, he has peripheral neuropathy, which manifests as pain in his feet. So he has significant pain, and he's had this for quite some time, and we would consider this chronic. Specifically, he also has spinal stenosis, and he's been on opioids for at least five years. We don't know exactly how long he's been on opioids because he came to our clinic in the last year and was managed by someone elsewhere outside of our uh, geographic area. So he came in on um, his MS Contin, or sorry, OxyContin, um, and he, he has a significant medical history in addition to his pain, coronary artery disease, he's had a myocardial infarction, he's had a drug-eluting stent, a cabbage place, he had West Nile virus, he has depression and fatigue, and those are conditions that some of the other speakers have talked about that are very um, common in patients with chronic pain. He also has, as part of the post-polio syndrome, a paralyzed right diaphragm. He has obstructive sleep apnea, hypoxia, risk factors you know, for um, having significant adverse events from the opioid. So we do get concerned about patients who are hypoxic taking um, opioids. He has other medical conditions like prostate problems, vitamin D deficiency, erectile dysfunction. Um, he's divorced. He played tennis competitively in college despite all of his polio issues. He was able to play tennis competitively and work as an attorney, so he was very functional um, until he retired, and that's when his functionality started to decline. So he now is pretty much living day to day just trying to manage his chronic pain and doesn't have a lot of activity that he can do to um, make his life more productive or more functional. So when I looked at his medications, he was taking OxyContin um, 40 milligrams twice a day. And what we did was we switched him to morphine extended release 50 milligrams twice a day 
because when I called his insurance, I was able to find out that his insurance covered at a much lower price the morphine extended release versus the oxycodone extended release. And that's one of the things that I do on a regular basis is try to find out what can be covered by the insurance. Doing this upfront is really important when you have a patient on a long-acting opioid because you don't want to be prescribing and giving out prescriptions for medications that they cannot fill, that then they can give to someone else and have someone else fill, or that they um, end up wasting the medication because they, you know, they can't afford the whole prescription. So um, he had been affording the oxycodone extended release for quite some time, but to the extent that he couldn't fill a full 90-day supply at a time like it was written because he couldn't afford a full 90 days. So it was much going to be much cheaper for him to get his morphine um, extended release and save him basically in the donut hole, because at this point he was in the donut hole. So he, we switched him to morphine ER, 50 milligrams twice a day. He was also taking oxycodone, 10 milligrams, one to two tabs every four hours as needed. That's how it was written. Gabapentin, 1,200 milligrams three times a day, which kind of made me go like, whoa, that's a lot of um, gabapentin for an older adult. And so I calculated his cranial clearance, and he was right at the cutoff for needing a dose reduction, but he was still above the cutoff of cranial clearance. So it was still somewhat reasonable. And then he was also on topiramate, for both of those for his neuropathic component. So one of the things that the other speaker mentioned um, earlier today, I think this was Dr. Fermansky, was that one of the things that would be good from the perspective of prescribing for this patient is that his oxycodone immediate release was written sort of an open window for how he could take that. And she mentioned that cutting down on the way that the prescription is written to be more prescriptive for the patient can definitely help both you and the pharmacist make conscious, um, educated decisions about how that medication should be used. So I really like what she talked about. Instead of doing one to two tablets here every four hours, maybe saying one tablet or two tablets, and then saying um, at 6 a.m., at noon, at 6 p.m., kind of, whatever works for the patient so that that patient would have less risk associated with that opioid. So. I thought that was a one, one really good point that we didn't do in clinical practice. So I didn't, I didn't make that recommendation, but I think that would have been a good one to make. Um, so, so what happened after we switched him to his morphine was that he called stating that he was shorted by the Walmart pharmacy and that he was supposed to get 180 morphine, but he only got 120 morphine. Well, as a pharmacist, I know that all C2 prescriptions in the pharmacy are double counted, and there's a specific log that we as pharmacists have to go to every time we dispense a C2, and we write down the number that were dispensed, and you back count all the supply that's left at the pharmacy. So there is a minuscule chance that that count was wrong. I mean, just basically zero chance that that count was wrong on his bottle. So I started to ask him more questions about why might he be you know, running out early, but didn't discount the fact that he thought that the pharmacy could have made an error. Because it's not, I guess it's really not zero, but it's definitely close to zero. So I asked him about this. He said Walmart denied it, which I'm sure was real, and that he was gonna run out in seven days. So what should he do? 
So when I did question him, he did admit to taking extra morphine. So he was saying that he added on an extra dose of his morphine, but it was maybe for seven days. So at that point, I knew we were running into some difficulty and that his, number one, his insurance was not going to pay for it. And number two, he was starting to use the medication in a way that we had not recommended to him. So um, he said, well, I'm gonna go to this pain clinic. He, we had set up an appointment with the pain clinic. We're gonna go to the pain clinic in a couple of days. And so I said, great, you know, maybe the pain clinic will have some recommendations for you. So he goes to the pain clinic, and, and when I did talk to him about the effectiveness, he said the morphine was better pain control than the oxycodone, but drowsiness was higher. So we went to the pain clinic, they switched him to Suboxone. So that did take care of the problem that he had run out of the morphine early because he was switched to a new drug. So now the insurance will pay for it. So the insurance will, will pay again if you change drugs. Or if you change to a different tablet strength, they'll pay again. So insurance is a great way for us to catch some of these dispensing issues, but insurance is not going to, to be a flag if you change strengths or you change drugs. So he was changed to Suboxone. So a month, a month goes by and he has decided that Suboxone did not help his pain. He wants to go back on morphine. So a morphine prescription was written for him in, in um, July by the pain clinic. And then again, we wrote a prescription in August. Well, in October, this is October 7th now, he calls me back and he says that he needs a new prescription for a 90-day supply, 180 pills. Three days later, he stated Costco couldn't fill that prescription because they were short on their supply, which I know can sometimes be a concern because they have to order them. It takes days to get the C2s in, so maybe that, that's real. But I did um, think it was odd that we had written a prescription. I looked through our records. We had written in August, and here he is saying that he's out, or that he's going to, you know, going to be out, and that Costco couldn't fill it. So I, I, I didn't know what was going on. And the pharmacy and he were saying he wants a bridge supply of 30 milligrams of morphine sustained release. So it's a, you know, they're asking for this a lower dose but because the insurance will pay for it because the insurance was going to go ahead you know go ahead and pay for that 30 milligram so it was all looking weird to me and I'm thinking you know what is going on I called Costco they last filled it July 23rd and it was dated from June so he waited a month and a half to fill this June prescription and they said then because of that it's next due 1021 and this was 107 so really, where do you go from here? What do you do? You have this weird stuff going on. It doesn't look right, but you don't, you don't necessarily know what to do. So um, what, we, what we do as a pharmacist is that we, can, we have a lot of resources to help you when you're the prescriber or you're a nurse in the clinic or you're a social worker in the clinic. We have a lot of resources where we can help you problem solve. So one of the first things that I want to make sure you are all aware of is that pharmacists are trained to really identify these opioid um, prescriptions and patients using opioids to try to identify if they have aberrant behavior. So pharmacies have access to objective data 
You ask your patient, are you taking extra or when was your last fill? And they don't know. If they don't have their bottle there, they may not be able to give you accurate information. But the pharmacy has that accurate information. So one of the things that you can do is phone up your pharmacy and ask them for that information. Pharmacists look for refill histories and they also look for early refills and they can contact you if they have concerns that the patient's requesting early refills. And sometimes you, you don't even know. So the patient calls the pharmacy, says I need a, you know, a, med a refill on this medication, um, I'm gonna call my doctor and get a new script. Or if it's Vicodin, can you fill my Vicodin early? And the pharmacy just says no. But they might not call you and tell you that. But they're often telling people no, you can't get it. But what they usually do is say no until the insurance pays again. And insurance will pay again, usually a week before they are due sometimes five days before they're due. So your patients can be getting fills five to seven days early every time. And that's, that's, that's technically legal in most states. There are some states that will limit the ability of the patient to get it, but for the most part, they're going off of the insurance and the insurances notice that they had paid 27 days earlier, so yes, you can go ahead and fill now. So pharmacists will review that information, and they may call you, but sometimes they may not. I just want to say something about that. Um, FEMA's been encouraging people to stockpile a two to three week supply of meds separate from their usual meds, um, and that the way they've been doing it is by doing exactly that, getting their refill a week early, taking a week's worth of meds out, putting them in separate bottles. So that's their emergency supply in the event of a natural disaster. And that's come up multiple times in several different disaster management programs that I participated in. Okay, thank you. So the comment was, was that FEMA is encouraging people to sort of stockpile their medications. And to, to some extent, I agree that that's probably appropriate, especially you don't want your patient having opioid withdrawal if they are on an opioid. Um, so that is one way to handle that, is to have them early fill, early fill. What I would do is have you document that in the medical record, the pharmacy document that in their record, so that we at least know why it's happening. And then it would seem appropriate that that would be the case, but short limited. So if you do that for three months straight and stockpile, maybe you're okay then. You don't need to continue to fill early, you know, or fill within that um, window five or seven days early for, you know, a year. You wouldn't need to continue for a year. But thank you for bringing that up. Um, so the other things that pharmacists can do is, first of all, they are allowed in every state to look in the PDMP, Prescription Drug Monitoring Program. So as a provider, the states are by choice deciding who can get into the PDMP. All prescribers can get into the PDMP, and all pharmacists can get into the PDMP. But other states are, are pickier. So I'm going to talk about the Vermont program in a minute. Um, how many of you practice in Vermont? Okay, so the Vermont program is a really cool program that allows the state to allow other providers or other healthcare practitioners to be a delegate of the physician. So that might mean that nurses in Vermont can access the PDMP as a delegate of the physician. In Colorado, you cannot. So I can access it as a pharmacist and a clinical pharmacist but um, my nurse in the clinic cannot. So she comes to me to have me look up the PDMP, and, which is great, I, I don't mind at all, and, and that's a good role for me, but in other clinics where there isn't a pharmacist, it makes it pretty challenging. 
So that is one of the challenges of the PDMP, and which is why you should rely on your pharmacist to do it for you, because they, in every state, can do that. Um, and then finally, pharmacists are also um, trained in many settings to evaluate the patient's medication profile and look to see who might be taking opiates and who might not be taking opiates. So for example, if, they, if um, patient A and patient B are both prescribed oxycodone, but patient A is also prescribed or taking Miralax for constipation, or they're taking Senna for constipation, or they're taking Lactulose, that looks normal. If patient B is taking oxycodone and has no medication for constipation, that's a red flag. So then we think to ourselves, okay, you know, why are you not on a medication for constipation? Because unless you're on fentanyl patches, 100% of patients should have some sort of bowel regimen unless they already have a bowel disorder like irritable bowel where they have diarrhea normally and now they have normal stools because of their opioid. So looking at the bowel regimen is another way that pharmacists will help to evaluate if that patient is really taking their opiates or not. And that's just a cheap man's version of doing a urine screen. <laughs> So if you can't, you know, if you can't do the urine screen or you, you don't have time or didn't, the patient didn't go to get their urine screen, like um, Dr. Krasnoff mentioned earlier, then you can also look for their constipation. If the patient is taking the, uh, the uh, um, Marilax or Senna over the counter, is it still in the, in the profile? That's, that's a great question. So if the patient is taking the Miralax or the Senna, sometimes those show up as a prescription because some um, states will pay for over-the-counter agents like that. But sometimes they won't, so then the pharmacist will ask the patient, you know, what are you taking? Or you, as a nurse, might ask the patient, what are you taking for constipation? And if they say nothing, then that's a red flag. So you would have to ask if it's an over-the-counter medication. So um, all of those are ways that pharmacists may, in the retail setting, in your local pharmacy, be, be evaluating patients and their opioid um, medications. And they're trained to communicate this with the provider to discuss the appropriateness of the opioid. Um, they're also trained to do this because they're legally held accountable by the DEA to make sure that the prescription is valid before they fill it. So pharmacists are doing this in clinical practice, but they're really um, not always hearing a positive voice on the other end saying, thank you for calling me about the opioid prescription. <laughs> so um, sometimes pharmacists are calling and the provider's really you know, thankful and, and it was appreciative. Sometimes the provider gets upset because they are bothered by the pharmacist sort of trying to circumvent or their, their um, authority or trying to question is it an appropriate medication for that patient when the provider has gone through that diagnosis and gone through the thought process already. Now I think in many cases um, as the provider over here at our table brought up, um, some providers are just quick to write out scripts and maybe they really didn't go through that full thought process when they made that prescription. So as, as a pharmacist, I find that you know, the, team, the team approach is always better, and sometimes it is frustrating when someone's questioning what you're doing, but often there's a good reason for it. And pharmacists are held liable by the DEA to do this process. So um, 
one of the one of the ways that the pharmacist can can verify this is going into the PDMP. So I want to bring up some basic information about the New Hampshire program, which has not been into effect yet, but has been voted on and signed into law by Governor Lynch in 2012. So this program is, instead of being called PDMP, is called the Controlled Drug Health and Safety Program. And the Controlled Drug Health and Safety Program, um, as mentioned previously, was voted in and to not cost the state of New Hampshire any money. <laughs> So sometimes it's hard to implement something if there's no funding for it. So this um, law tasked this, this group, um, the State Board of Pharmacy and this other organization, to fund it at no cost to the state with federal and private grants. So what I'm assuming is happening is that they are building the funding for this program through applying for grants. And that can take years. So at this point, I think the program is, is still you know, on hold, but there are, if you search their website, there are meetings on a regular basis, and these meetings come from the advisory committee. Um, as mentioned previously, New Hampshire is one of only a few states that don't have this, so now it's in 48 states. So there are 48 states with the holdouts being Missouri and New Hampshire. <laughs> So um, in Colorado, we've had this program for, for almost 10 years, and Colorado is never the first state to start any new program. Um, but we have had these programs in the US for quite a while. So I've been really fortunate to be able to use this program, and we've changed vendors, and I've learned a lot about how these programs work. So I'm gonna talk about the Vermont one today and kind of show you some of the information from that Vermont program. Um, but back to New Hampshire, it will be really helpful when this New Hampshire program comes about. Um, this will allow, just like all other programs, Schedule 2 through Schedule 4 medications to be tracked. And this is specifically designed for doctor shoppers and then also to look for multiple or duplicate controlled substance prescriptions for a patient. Um, the program in New Hampshire is going to also assist in notifying law enforcement and any regulatory boards of unusual activity. Now they say that this, this on their, um, the website about how that this will assist with it, but I don't know if this is going to require providers and pharmacists to then notify law enforcement or if there will be some sort of automated notification. But in the system in Vermont and the system in Colorado, the providers and the pharmacists are the ones that have to notify the law enforcement when they see unusual activity. So it's not an automated system in Vermont or in Colorado. And this 13-member advisory council um, is what's assisting the Board of Pharmacy in developing and, and making the operation of the PDMP. So are any of you on this advisory committee? Okay. So one of the things that I would recommend for people in New Hampshire, as a nurse in particular, or a social worker in particular, is that if you can find out who that contact is for the advisory committee, they're still in their, their um, initial stages of developing the program, and I would suggest that since Vermont allows a delegate of the physician, I would suggest to New Hampshire to also allow a delegate of the physician. And I would think that in, at this early stage that would still be possible to be worked into the program. So if you know um, someone that, since I'm not from New Hampshire, it's hard for me to know who that person is, but if you know anyone who might be, or you have a contact at the state board, of pharmacy, that would be 
something I would want to do as a nurse or a social worker is say, hey, we want to have this ability for delegates, just like Vermont has the ability for delegates. So let's go over what the Vermont program looks like. And these slides that I have come from the state um, board's representative for this PDMP. So they sent me their slides, and I'm using their slides to show you what the PDMP looks like. So Vermont was able to establish this in 2009 um, under Act 205, and theirs is called VPMS, Vermont Prescription Monitoring System, VPMS. So if you go to this website here at healthvermont.gov, you can see the VPMS for Vermont. And how many of you guys have used that program? Okay, great. So um, one thing that's great about this program is that it started in around 2009, so it's been going for a couple of years, but recently they have, by November 15th, every prescriber, based on Act 75, every prescriber who writes for a prescription for a controlled substance by Friday must be registered. So if you prescribe in Vermont, you have to be registered supposedly by Friday. Question. I work in Charlestown, New Hampshire, but I have a lot of Vermont patients who fill their prescriptions at Vermont pharmacies, and I'm in the process of applying to be included in this program, but on their application forms, they don't allow, there's no space to put that you're a New Hampshire licensed provider, uh -huh. so I had to write a cover letter to them, but it seems like in terms of regulatory agencies, the Connecticut River is an impassable boundary and patients don't travel back and forth. Right. So when I, when I was um, doing the... The same problem, I, I practice in Vermont, but we live, I only live 20 minutes from Littleton, New Hampshire, uh -huh. and we have patients that fill their prescriptions across the Connecticut River. So, and there's no way to track them in New Hampshire. So there's, there's not, it's a right. great system, but there's a huge, huge problem. Mm -hmm. Yes, so I'm sure you're right. Patients will figure this out. So um, I appreciate those comments because when I was um, first asked to give this presentation and, and I wanted to include a more useful PDMP to you all versus like including slides from Colorado, I looked at the states and I thought, you know, Vermont, that's very close. That'll be, that'll be a good one to choose. But I had no idea actually how close it was <laughs> until Ellen drove me across the river and we went to the next side in about one minute. So, so that was um, very enlightening for me to see exactly how close it is. And I agree with you. I think patients will figure it out and they will go to New Hampshire to fill their prescriptions because those pharmacies won't be reporting into the system. So that is something that I think we have to think about when we're looking at the PDMP from Vermont. Actually, I talked to uh, Linda Sawyer at the DHMC Pharmacy, and they do upload to the Vermont system weekly. Oh, good. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Thank you. So um, I'll talk about who has to report and stuff like that in a minute here. But by Friday, anyone who's prescribing in Vermont has to be, any prescriber has to be registered with the program. So I, it's great that you did that and you know sent them your information even though you're technically in New Hampshire. I think that's a great idea. Um, but, but as I stated earlier, one of the best things about this is that prescribers can designate a delegate to access the PDMP for them. And that is so helpful because what is going to happen now in Vermont is prescribers are going to need to access the PDMP before they prescribe an opiate. 
So that is time intensive. And for me to actually go in and log in and look at the report, it's at least five minutes. And usually it's longer than that. So it's time intensive to the extent that it will be very helpful to have a delegate who can do that for you, like a medical assistant or a nurse or um, a social worker or someone, a pharmacist, who has time that um, time and more potentially more availability to more critically evaluate that. The one downside is that it has to happen before you prescribe. So um, what this what this um, system does is that, and I let me see if it's on here. And it's, I'm gonna flip. I'm gonna flip to this one really quick and go back to the other slides. <clears throat> so by Friday, prescribers must query the system in the following circumstances. So there are four circumstances. The first is at least annually for anyone who's getting a C2, a C3, or C4. That means once a year you need to do a double check and look at your patients and see what they're taking and where are they filling it at and um, are they getting them filled early, that kind of thing. So once a year it's required for providers to access this. In addition, if you're starting a patient on a C2, 3, or 4 controlled substance for non-palliative long-term pain of 90 days or more. So in the instance um, when Dr. Krasnoff talked about her patient, she for, the, for one of those prescriptions, you didn't even think about that this was going to be long-term use. So if you're thinking this is going to be for one month of opioid use, then, then you don't have to access it. But if you're thinking this is going to be chronic pain, I'm treating with an opioid, or I'm using um, Adderall for, I'm going to use Adderall for long-term for their um, ADHD or whatever, then you are required to access the PDMP to evaluate their history. The third instance is the first time a provider prescribes a C2, 3, or 4 written to treat chronic pain. So this is almost the same thing as number two, except that say you're the provider who's covering for another provider, and that's not your patient, and they've been on their opioid for you know four months, and now you're seeing them episodically, then you have to access the PDMP too, even though your, your partner has probably already done it. And then number four, prior to writing a replacement prescription for any controlled substance. So if the patient's saying they lost their medication or it got eaten by their dog or they had, you know, someone, it just disappeared into thin air, then you have to access it before you provide a replacement prescription. And to be honest, I think this is one of the most important ones to evaluate this replacement prescription one to see are they doctor shopping, are they going from pharmacy to pharmacy, are they trying to pay cash for one script and insurance for another so that it's not flagging the insurance. So Vermont is expecting as of Friday all providers to do these types of things in order to evaluate their prescription history. Um, going back a couple of slides, um, for the Vermont PDMP is very similar to other states. And in all, almost all the states that I have seen, it's always two, three, and four, so it doesn't include schedule five. So for example, some medications like cough syrups are schedule five. Those are not included in the PDMP <clears throat> in all states. So in Vermont, they're not. Um, but what it does is it collects any of these prescriptions that are in the controlled substances, and it's maintained for six years. 
So in Vermont, if you have a patient moving back and forth from Vermont to another state, or they're leaving your practice, going to another practice, that information will be maintained for six years, which is very helpful for patients moving back and forth. Um, the, the evaluation um, of this information can be done by providers and pharmacists, and you can access this full history of controlled substances. So in addition to opioids, which we're talking about today, you'll also see medications for like testosterone, or you'll see Zolpidem for their, for their insomnia, or you'll see that they're taking Adderall for their ADHD, and guess what? You didn't even know they were on Adderall. So a lot of times we see that we look at the PDMP and it's super helpful to just get a better idea of what's going on with that patient because you don't necessarily always have the full history of their medications, especially if they're going to a psychiatrist where it's protected and you can't read their chart. So it's really helpful to be able to get that full history of fills using the PDMP. In addition, um, the the pharmacies are obtaining this information on a weekly basis in Vermont. So states can decide how often the pharmacies have to upload the information. And in Vermont, it's, it's once a week, which is pretty good. Other states are sometimes once every two weeks or once a month. So the great thing about Vermont is that every week, the pharmacy has to upload the information into the PDMP that they filled those prescriptions. That means that if you write a prescription um, today, which is Wednesday, by next Wednesday, and it's filled, by next Wednesday, that prescription will be uploaded into the PDMP. So it's a quicker turnaround, which allows you to see that that medication shows up on, on that system. Question? Does the, um, does the, the watch that pharmacies have now on Sudafed, um, is this the same system that, for instance, if someone went pharmacy to pharmacy buying Sudafed in their local store, is this the system that it would show up on? That's a great question. So the question was, um, is this the same system as the Sudafed system? And that's no, it's not. So if, you're, if your patient is getting Sudafed and they're scanning it in into their system, like at Target, we scan it in and Target knows, each Target knows that they received Sudafed there, that information goes nowhere besides Target. So if you are at you know, a local pharmacy and you get Sudafed, you can actually, in, in many states, they can still handwrite it. They don't even have to have a computer system. I'm not quite sure about New Hampshire or Vermont, but in many states, it still doesn't have to be electronic. So some pharmacies are electronic and some are not, but that system does not talk to other systems and other pharmacies, nor does it talk to this system. So that's, just as an FYI, you can definitely go to multiple pharmacies to get Sudafed and it won't get caught. Yeah. This is too bad. <clears throat> it is too bad. Comment or question? That slide seems to be saying that the Vermont Board of Pharmacy is licensing pharmacies that are outside of Vermont. Oh, good, good point, yes. So every Board of Pharmacy will license pharmacies outside of their state. So if the pharmacy is licensed outside of Vermont, that usually means that they're mailing prescriptions into Vermont citizens. So it's usually not a local pharmacy, although if you have some literally on the border, they may be in, falling in this situation where if they're on the border of New Hampshire and Vermont, they would be, have to be licensed in both states. So 
If our patients from Colorado get a mail order from Medco, for example, or Caremark Pharmacy, they have to be licensed in Colorado. And the same would be true for Vermont or New Hampshire. So those pharmacies then have to report into the PDMP. Now, patients go to mail orders sometimes that are not licensed in that state. And that's like our patients will mail to Canada. And you know, so those are not going to be reporting in because they're technically not licensed into the state. But if the mail order is licensed in Vermont and they're mailing prescriptions to Vermont citizens, they will have to report in. And they'll all have to do that within seven days, which is, or they are doing it within seven days currently, which is great. <clears throat> okay, so we already went over what the prescribers must do. Um, so in addition to the prescribers and the pharmacists and the prescribers delegates accessing the system, patients can also request a report. And I would assume this is um, for the patient's protection. If they were to be investigated, for example, they can request a report, but they can't access the system and get on like you can as a provider. Also, the boards, like the Board of Pharmacy or the Board of Medicine or the Board of Nursing can also go in and access the system if they need to for an investigation. But other than the, them getting the information from the system, really the only people who can access it are the pharmacist and the provider, and then a provider's delegate if they, if they opt to do that. So this is what it looks like here um, with the Vermont PDMP, and this is the same vendor that Colorado uses. This vendor is used by most of the states. There are several different vendors, but most states contract with this vendor. And um, this is a, a good program in terms of ease of use. In addition, this particular program here can link with other states. So as we previously discussed, New Hampshire and Vermont, Maine, they're not linked up right now. But they do have the potential to do that. So just recently in Colorado, we started to link to all of the states around our state. But we've had the PDMP for a long time, and it took a long time to be able to link up to those other states. I think now, since most states have started to want to do that, it, once New Hampshire comes on board, I'm guessing that they will be able to link up to Vermont if they use the same vendor. So that's another thing you'd want to make sure they're trying to use the same vendor if they can. So when you go into the PDMP, you log in um, to the system, and you can, you can get a... Um, log in very easily, but there's an application online, like you mentioned. If you're licensed in Vermont, then you submit your application and they will send you the login information. When you log in, you'll first see how to select a patient. So you type in the patient's last name and their first name. You can see, if you can see, it's tiny. It says dummy data. Um, but this, this particular patient here has the name dummy data, and then you type in the date of birth I, t I always skip gender and I skipped, skip this um, matching stuff because if you do exact match, you're not going to find all of your patient information. So what I found from real life use of the system is that patients' information at different pharmacies can really vary. Sometimes their name is Bill. Sometimes their name is Robert. Sometimes their name is Bob. Sometimes their name has a middle initial. Sometimes their street address changes. So it's important to never do exact match when you're searching through this. Um, and then you can search for up to two years at a time. 
on the Vermont system. So I fill in the name and the date of birth and that's it. And then what happens is the report will show you all the variations of that patient's name and their address and where they're going, what pharmacy and stuff. So if you do an all-inclusive, you're more likely to get all of the information. However, it's going to take you a little bit more time to weed through the information. So there are a couple different ways to use this. So at that point, you can see this dummy data has really only one entry in here. But if, if the patient went by dummier data, then there would be a line right here. <laughs> or if they went by um, a different, this says Vermont Street, if they were on 169 Vermont Street, because someone typed it in wrong, there'd be another line there. So it gives you all the options, and then you can select all these options for what you want to actually print into the report. So if you see that the patient's name is actually a different patient, and they live in a totally different city, way far away, and you don't think it's literally that same patient with the same birthday, then you don't select it. But if it's possible that that patient moved from city to city, then you go ahead and select that patient. Then what you do is you get a report, and this is in a, um, just on a web, web page report of what the patient's medications are. If you want to generate it into something you can print, then you click Generate Report, and it will put it into a PDF document. And what I believe Vermont wants you to do is print the PDF report and put it in the patient's chart. And then you'll have it for use later. Now, you may have to scan it into the electronic medical record, but then you'll have that information permanently, so you will have documentation that you actually did that search. Oh. Okay, so that's a good question. Um, so one of the, one of the um, members up here mentioned that it's not allowed. It, as far as I know, number one, printing is allowed. So you can, you can print it. You can give it to the patient. You can keep it. Um, I have not heard that you cannot put it in the medical record. It's changed. Originally, it wasn't allowed to be in the medical record, but now it is allowed in the medical record. Wow. So they updated it to the requirement that everybody has, has to do it. Yes. So... So thank you for mentioning that, because what my understanding was now that it's required that you do it, it goes into the medical record. So thank you for clarifying that. So what you'll see here is you'll get a date, date dispensed, date prescribed, quantity dispensed, day supply, and refills. And you get this for any C2, 3, or 4. So you can see um, that dummy data had a Zolpidem prescription filled here. He had a Suboxone prescription filled here and Lorazepam. So all of these were done by the same provider, M. Pelier, and then you can see, <laughs> did I pronounce, is it a, oh, Mont <laughs> the capital of Vermont. I do, I know my capitals because I have a fourth grader, so. <laughs> Montpelier, Vermont, yes. Concord, New Hampshire? Yes, okay. So, um, <laughs> provider Montpelier thank you and you have the prescription number and you can also see where they were dispensed so one of the things that's really helpful about the system is looking for different pharmacies on here so you'll see that they go from one pharmacy to another pharmacy to another pharmacy or they may have a mail order pharmacy you didn't know about or they um, they're going to just a different pharmacy than you expected so that's one piece of information that's helpful 
Another piece of information that's helpful is the provider information. So you'll get on here the recipient data and also where that provider is located. And um, I think it's on the next screen, but it'll give you the address of the provider. And you can actually then contact. If you see two providers, you and someone else are seeing that patient, then you can actually contact them and call them up and say, you know, what's going on? I'd like to discuss patient XX. We have been filling prescriptions for, for this patient and you have been writing prescriptions for this patient. Um, the other really good thing about this is it gives you the date dispensed and the date prescribed. So I'm going to show you the actual PDMP report or, or um, my version of it that I typed up for my patient and you'll see on there that those are, dates can be very different. So you can see people sort of hanging on to prescriptions for months and then using a prescription way later from one that was written much earlier. And so even if the patient isn't necessarily filling it regularly from another provider, they may have gotten scripts for it and it'll show up later, which is why it's helpful to do it once a year at a minimum, like Vermont re recommends, because you may see something normal one day and then months down the road see something totally different. And that can be because they've been holding on to these scripts and not filling them right when they were actually written. So this person, data, dummy data, did fill their prescription on the same day. Um, so you see the date it was written, the date it was filled, you see the quantity, you see the day's supply, and you see the refills. So this is the original number of refills. Zolpidem had two refills initially, and then you'll see on the next, re next fill, it'll only have one refill remaining. So it will count down when the pharmacy dispenses it. Um, some things that are important to recognize about this system is that you will not see the script being deleted if it's returned to stock. So say your patient gets their prescription filled and they don't ever pick it up, the pharmacy returns it to stock because they have to within seven days return it to stock or they are committing Medicare fraud because they're getting paid from Medicare for the medication. So they have to return it to stock and it will not delete off the PDMP. So that's one thing to note. Sometimes, very rarely, but sometimes you'll see a fill for a patient. They'll say, I didn't actually get that. And at that point, what you do is you call the pharmacy and say, did this get returned to stock? And they'll say, yes, it did get returned to stock. And you'll say, okay, I believe my patient. They were telling the truth. So that's happened maybe twice since we've been using the PDMP where a patient really did, they didn't pick it up and it was returned to stock and it would not show up on this report. So there's a lot of really good information that you can get on this report and you can see here that when you go to request the PDF, um, once this becomes blue, then you can actually get this. This is what you'll see in the PDF report. So you'll see here the same medications listed out, the fill date, the drug, the quantity, the day supply, the prescriber's um, DEA number, the written date, the prescription number, and then the pharmacy, D, or the pharmacy um, NABP number. So you'll see then this information here describes the doctor. So this was DEA AP1234567, Montpelier was the pre prescriber, Montpelier is on Maple Street in Rutland, for. Um, Vermont. So you'll see that contact information for the provider is listed there. And that has been so helpful for us because we have patients who are going to ERs across Denver 
And I don't know where that ER is, and I don't, and you know, the patient is not very forthcoming with information, but we can find out where they went and then call up that place, get their medical records, and double check what, what occurred. Um, it also gives you the pharmacy information, so this easy discount drugstore is in Rutland, Vermont, and then it gives you the patient's information too, patients that match the search criteria, their date of birth, and their address. So this is a nicer, I think the PDF is a little bit nicer report to view. So I typically go straight to the PDF, print it out, and then, um, or save it to the computer, and then view it that way versus viewing it in the other screen. Question? Yes, so if you print it, so the question was, does, is the provider DEA number on there if you print the report for the patient? And the answer is yes. So that patient will see the DEA number. So if I was to um, give, them, give that to the patient, you either have to black out some of that information or you have to just, I, what's probably better is have the patient request the, the um, printout from the program itself. So if the patient wants to request a printout, they can. They have to do so in writing, and they write the Board of Pharmacy, and the Board of Pharmacy will then give them their printout, which I'm sure just cross their fingers doesn't have your DEA information on it. But this printout is specifically for providers, so it's not the one that's given to patients. Another question. Yeah, I'm just wondering if the VA doctors or military installation physicians have to do this too. Okay, so that's a great question. I'm glad you brought it up. There are some exceptions for who has to submit, and um, the question was, do, do VA doctors or military institutions have to submit to this? And no, they do not. So if your patient, yeah, if your patient goes to a military facility to get their prescriptions, you will probably not see them in the PDMP. That's been my experience. Um, in Denver, we have Buckley Air Force Base, and the Air Force Base serves a lot of our patients, and their pharmacy does not submit information. They're not required to because they follow under federal law, not state law, and this is a state program. So they can submit their information, but they are not required to, and in Colorado, they have not done that yet. So. Um, if you have questions then about your patient, you have to call that, call that facility. So I have called Buckley Pharmacy and said, hey, can you fax me over a report of my patient's prescriptions for, their, for um, oxycodone? And they'll do that. They fax me the report and it's basically um, you know, less time for me. I don't have to log in. I just have to call and, and speak to someone. But I also call the Denver VA Medical Center because we have patients that go back and forth between the university and the VA. And they're also happy to go ahead and fax us a list of their medications because they can easily, as a pharmacy, print out their medication report for, the, for whatever time period you want. Just like patients request the pharmacy for that printout for insurance purposes, you can request that printout from the local um, VA pharmacy or the you know military-based pharmacy, so it does take an extra step of calling, but it is something that you can easily access without breaking HIPAA because you do have the need to see that information. Question: In my experience in the area of Manchester, New Hampshire, the pharmacies will not fill a prescription that is more than 48 hours of narcotics, and I think that's a pretty good thing because they cannot refill it a week after, two weeks after, it has to be in 48 hours. 
And uh, we all have our DEA number in our prescriptions. You cannot avoid that. Yeah, so um, the comment about the DEA number, many DEA numbers are on the prescription. Um, you know, if you're, if you're not electronically giving it to the pharmacy because it has to be printed out because it's a C2, for example, then your DEA number is on the prescription, yes. Um, and I think some patients recognize that, but now the electronic prescriptions are um, the main way that most pharmacies are getting prescriptions and you're printing them out for the patients, but it's still electronic, they are less likely to be able to forge prescriptions. So the forgery aspect, I think, has gone way down. It's more the aspect of patients using and misusing their opioids or family members or they're selling it, for example. Um, so let me show you, let me sh I'll, I'll get to the, my patient in just a second here. I'm going to show you what his medications were. So I mentioned some of the limitations. If they are returned to stock, they're not always in the system. Um, most recent fills are not in the system immediately, so in Vermont you'll have to wait potentially up to a week. But at the most, it would be a week. So if you go in and you expect to see something within you know, 10 days later, you sh if, if it's not there, it didn't happen. Um, mail order prescriptions are sometimes in the system and sometimes not. I found probably in the last year to two that most mail orders are in there, but not, they're not 100%. So you may have to call the mail order pharmacy. Um, also, records for inpatient facilities, long-term care facilities, and hospice are often exempt. So for example, in Vermont, those facilities are exempt. So if you're in a long-term care facility working and you go on to the PDMP, the fills in your facility will not necessarily show up in the system. And that's because they're exempt from um, putting that in there because they're administering the medication. So in any case where it's administered by a nurse that, um, or med tech, that is exempt from reporting. And then we already kind of talked about VA or military bases are usually not in there. So the benefits of this are, one, you can refill um, or review their fill history to see if they even need a new prescription. So if they come in and say, I need a new prescription for my opiate, you can say, well, let's look on the PDMP and see if you actually do need you know, a new prescription. Or your medical assistant or the nurse, whoever's helping you, can go in and look to see, do you actually need a new prescription? The next reason is that you can review for doctor or pharmacy shopping, and that one's really easy to tell when you look to see who's filled the prescription, where have they filled it, and what doctor wrote that prescription. Was it me or was it some other provider? And then the additional thing that I didn't show you on that screen is that you can see who, how it was paid for. So if they went through insurance, it will say their insurance information there and who paid for it. If they paid cash, it will say cash. And cash is a huge red flag. If someone's paying cash, that means they're trying to circumvent the system that's already in place with insurance to deny the prescription if it's too early. So cash is by far a red flag in every scenario because almost every patient has either Medicaid or Medicare that you should be caring for, and they should not be paying cash for their prescriptions unless something funky is going on. So back to our case, um, this was the patient who he was requesting a new prescription for a 90-day supply. This is um, October the 7th. Three days later, he stated Costco couldn't fill it because of supply issues. He wanted a bridge supply of morphine, 30 milligrams um, ER, 
And when I looked, he had last filled, I called Costco, he'd last filled July 23rd. It was dated June the 4th. And so what was going on there? Plus our EMR said there was a script from August 16th. So if you look, this is his history and not all the information I included. I left off doctor name, you know, all, all the HIPAA information, um, along with the pharmacy. I just listed the name. But let's start at the beginning here. So this is from the most recent to the um, latest. So in 2012, you can see that he was still on OxyContin 40 milligrams. And he was getting variable supplies, started out at Walgreens, then he went to Medco mail order. So he was doing a 45-day supply of these oxycodone scripts because he couldn't afford 90 days at a time. So we were writing it for 90 days at a time, but he couldn't afford it. So he was only getting 45-day supply based on cost. So that explains those weird, you know, weird dispensations of why it would be 45. So if you notice here, he was on OxyContin. He also got oxycodone 5 milligram, the immediate release form, both on um, December 14th. But they were written on December 5th. That's totally normal because on December 5th, you're going to have to mail it in to the mail order. You expect a lag. They're going to fill a little bit later. So that didn't strike me as odd at all. Then you see um, after December 14th, the next fill is January the 18th. So that's almost a month in between, but he was getting a 45-day supply. So they were going ahead and filling it. And for some reason, we weren't paying attention, and we were giving it to him. We wrote it on December the 5th, then we wrote it again on January the 4th. So we weren't paying attention that the patient had really gotten a 45-day supply, and that we were writing a new script. So then we have the next script here. Oddly, it was 30 milligrams, so this must have been an error. We must have messed up because we were continuing the 40. So then the next script here, he does go about 45 days. And that's with the lower strength OxyContin. So he's on the lower strength and he goes 45 days until the next fill. Like, what the heck? So then you see um, after this, but, but he's getting a little bit of a delay here. It was written February 14th. He fills it March 1st. Then we have the next fill, again, a month later with a 45-day supply. So he's taking more or he's stockpiling. He's doing something with it. Check this out. It's the November 30th script. So somehow he got a script written November 30th and November 29th. I'm guessing that this was a replacement script. So we probably wrote a replacement script on November 30th. And instead of writing replacement on it like you should, I think that's a great idea to write replacement on it. We didn't do that. And he had now two scripts from November, November 29th and November 30th. And then that allowed him to get two separate fills because scripts are good for a year. So unless you write specifically, even narcotics. So if you write specifically on there only good for 90 days, they're good for a year. So you can get scripts, federal law is one year for scripts to be valid if they've never been filled. So that allows him to fill in April this November 30th prescription. So at this point in April is when we switched him over to morphine extended release, 50 milligram. We gave him, because it was so much less expensive, a 90-day supply. He was able to fill all of that at Walmart. And I said, you know, like, we're trying to switch you to a different medication. Let's not use mail order. 
because we don't even know if this medicine's gonna work. Let's switch you to, from mail order to a local pharmacy. And he said, okay, great. And I said, Costco is so much less expensive than other pharmacies in general. Maybe you wanna switch to Costco. And just as an FYI, do you guys have Costco here? So if you have a Costco, you don't have to have a Costco membership to use their pharmacy. So anyone can use Costco pharmacy, and if they have to pay cash for any medication, it's cheaper at Costco than any other pharmacy. I've called thousands of different places over t you know, 10, 15 years, and Costco's by far the cheapest pharmacy. So we recommended, he, he filled this initial script at Walmart, but we recommended he switch to Costco. So he's had Walgreens, he's had Medco, he has Walmart, and now he has Costco. But we can kind of explain all of the different transitions between the pharmacies. So it does take a little bit of effort, though, to, to evaluate that. So in April, we switched him to morphine. He got a 90-day supply April 25th of morphine. Then in June, he calls and says, I'm out early. Remember, he said, I'm out of my morphine. Walmart shorted me. Well, what was probably happening was he was taking it three times a day. And so he ran out early June. So it only lasted him a 45-day supply, which is not reasonable. That means he's starting to show a little bit of aberrant behavior. He's taking his medication on it with his own dose, not what we recommended. So at that point, he was switched to the Suboxone. He got a Suboxone one film, um, or one day's worth of film on June 12th. He got a 30-day supply on June 14th. He got a 15-day supply on July 8th, and then he said, I, I don't like Suboxone. I want to go back to morphine. So one of the problems here is, what do we do with the Suboxone? So that's one issue. We have extra Suboxone, and what, do, you know, what are we going to do with it? Did you have a question? Oh, OK. We're short on time. Oh, we're short. OK, I'm sorry. So then we have, um, we, we go back to morphine. And you can see he called and said that he needed more morphine, but yet he had filled it April 25th. So we went ahead and gave it to him. Um, in his June prescription didn't get filled until July 23rd because of the insurance. And then you can see he called again early in October and wanted it again. So what we found here was that he was not taking it like he was supposed to be taking it. He was filling it early, and he was doing weird stuff with like hoarding the prescription and using it later. So these all required an intervention in terms of speaking to him about what was going on. Um, so I'm going to speed up a little bit because I want to get through a few more slides. But um, pharmacies are liable if they are not evaluating these prescriptions to be valid. So in the case of Walgreens, you may have seen this, but they have to pay $80 million. $80 million because their pharmacies were not following DEA's um, recommendation to, to look for valid prescriptions. Um, six of Walgreens Florida pharmacies ordered more than a million oxycodone tabs in a year. The average pharmacy in the U.S. is 73,000 tabs. Six of those pharmacies, they all lost their DEA license and their ability to be open as a pharmacy. One pharmacy in Fort Myers increased from 95,000 to 2.2 million. Another one in a town of 34,000 people ordered 2.2 million. So all of these investigated um, or signaled a DEA investigation. So now pharmacies and Walgreens are actually doing this target good um, faith dispensing checklist. So this is why some of the pharmacies are calling you and asking you about your prescriptions because they have to. So Wal Walgreens specifically has this checklist where they go 
Um, they say the patient has to show their ID. They look. They have to look in the PDMP before they dispense any prescriptions for that patient. They're also looking to see has anything been flagged, red flagged, that this patient might be doing something that's aberrant or or something that's not okay. Like, are they paying cash? That's one of the things. It's hard to see on here, but that's one of the things on the checklist. Um, do they have? Um, do you have an ICD-9 code that's diagnosed them with chronic pain? So sometimes they're calling you to get their ICD-9 code. And all of this has given a lot of backlash by the AMA. So the American Medical Association got really upset about all these pharmacies calling doctors and saying, hey, we want to know about your patient's diagnosis. And so the AMA actually made a resolution this summer that they were against this. So this has made it challenging for pharmacists because here the AMA is saying we don't want you calling us and the pharmacies are saying the DEA is taking our license away. So pharmacies are put in kind of a difficult situation and so as a pharmacist I would just say if you could try to be patient with us, um, we're struggling here with what to do. So the AMA is saying, you know, that they're inappropriate inquiries and that they're um, to verify the medical rationale behind the prescription, the diagnosis, and treatment plan is interference with the practice of medicine. They also said that they're going to try to work with us on these things, but if inappropriate pharmacist prescription verification requirements and inquiry issues are not resolved promptly, then they're going to advocate for legislative changes. So this, is, this was very disturbing to pharmacy in general because we felt like we were you know, forced to do this by the DEA. So just as an FYI, I don't know how many Walgreens you have, but Walgreens is what, the one that was the impetus for this AMA resolution. Um, how many more minutes do I have? We're out of time. Okay. So um, I'm going to just make some brief statements about these, and I'll let, I'll let you read the slides when they, they come out. There are some labeling changes for the opioid prescriptions that are, that are ER and LA dosage forms. These are just heightening the awareness that the FDA realizes that ER and long-acting forms of opioids are highly risky. So they want providers to utilize the immediate release dosage forms as much as possible and avoid the ER, LA forms if you can. Um, if you use the ERLA forms, there are many risks here, and so that the labels are changing. The limitations of use are now say, stating that unless you need around-the-clock um, dosing, that this this medication is not appropriate. And they also have an updated black box warning that talks about addiction and abuse. It talks about that neonatal opioid withdrawal syndrome, like if the mother's pregnant, and it also talks about interaction with alcohol. So there are highlighted new warnings about the ER and LA forms. In addition, they have new medication guides. So the pharmacies are supposed to be dispensing medication guides about the medications, and that those um, will be updated to include this information. They're also making them do studies. So all of the dosage forms that are ER or LA, and also including fentanyl patches and methadone, have to now do clinical studies to evaluate for opioid abuse. They have to look at hyperalgesia. They have to look at coding for opioid abuse. And they have to look at um, doctor and pharmacy shopping as an outcome. So these are all due, the plans due by 2014. And then finally, I want to let you know that the DEA is now being recommended by the FDA to change hydrocodone products to a C2. So that means that if this is likely to be accepted, um, 
in the near, very near future, all of the hydrocodone acetaminophen products and plain hydrocodone will all be a C2 product. So that will mean that you will be having increased requirements for being able to dispense and, or to write for those products. So that's expected in 2014. And there is a new FDA-approved Zohydra ER hydrocodone bitartrate extended release, and it's a C2. That was approved a couple of days ago. All right. Um, Ohio has some really cool guidelines. If you're interested in practice recommendations for your state, Ohio has some new guidelines, and they're available on the website, which is listed here, opioidprescribingohio.gov. Um, basically, they say the maximum dose of morphine should be 80 milligrams a day, or equivalent of whatever your drug you're using. And if not, you need to be thinking, stepping back and saying, guess what, maybe we need to reevaluate your pain management. So Ohio has some really cool new guidelines. Um, and then finally, I want to um, also highlight drug disposal. Um, Dr. Krasnoff mentioned this, but the DEA does have a take-back program. Um, this is twice a year, and they'll take back any opiates, any prescriptions, any pet prescriptions, anything. And those are where the police stations that collect your drugs in their lockboxes will take them to twice a year. They take them to the DEA disposal day. Um, the FDA says you can dispose of C2s in the toilet. They do say that. But that's because they don't want the C2s making it out into the general public. So even though the FDA says that, I would not recommend flushing. I would recommend disposing them of them with the DEA disposal day in October or April or taking them to the law enforcement offices. Thank you so much for your time.